2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society, and today I am pleased and honored to have with us Professor Vernon Baltimore, CBE. Professor Baltimore is Professor of Government at King's College London, and for many years he was Professor of Government at Oxford University. Today we are speaking about his newest book, Britain and Europe in a Troubled World, published by Yale University Press. Welcome, Professor Bontenor. Thank you very much, and
1: thank you for your generous introduction. Professor, what uh, one may say is the thesis of your book? Well, the thesis of my book is that Brexit is a very important matter, obviously for Britain and Europe, but also for America. And perhaps this is a point worth elaborating at the beginning because America's been involved in European affairs for a very long time. Perhaps it began at the beginning of the 20th century. Now, in 1911, there was almost a war in Europe between Germany and France based on the question of imperial rights in Morocco. And... uh, After the war scare was over, the ex-president of America, Theodore Roosevelt, told the German ambassador that if there'd been a war, America would have fought in the war on the side of France. And the German ambassador said, well, isn't that really against the Monroe Doctrine? And uh, Theodore Roosevelt said, no, it isn't. Because um, in Europe, Britain uh, was the power that upheld the balance of power in Europe but she was not able to do that as much as in the past because she was becoming a bit weaker. And to the extent that Britain couldn't, America would have to do it. And then he said, America's becoming really the balance of power in the whole globe, which I think is an astonishing prediction of the course of 20th century history, because if it hadn't been for America, Germany might have won both world wars and we'd live in a very different sort of world. Now, Americans might have thought, that what happened in 1914 in Sarajevo, the murder of the heir to the Austrian archduke, had nothing to do with them. And they might have thought in 1939, a quarrel between Germany and Poland over um, the city of Danzig had nothing to do with them. They'd have been wrong. They were involved and many lives were lost as a result. So I hope people think that Brexit is important to America as well as
2: to Europe. Why Why do you say that in the late 20th century, liberalism seeks to transform nationalism, unlike, say, liberalism of the 19th century? Well, that's a very good question and a very difficult one to answer. But we did see, I think, from
1: 1914 onwards, that nationalism could cause wars. The clashes between national states in Europe in particular and arguably the First World War was caused by a clash between German nationalism and Slav nationalism in Serbia, and then the Second World War by a clash between German nationalism and Polish nationalism. So Europeans came to the view after the war that if you wanted to create a liberal order you had to transcend nationalism and that's why The European Union was created. It's not, as some Americans think, primarily an economic project, nor is it primarily a federal project. It's primarily a peace project. And the original aim was to get Germany and France, these hereditary enemies, to get them together, to lock their economies together so it would just be impossible for them to go to war
2: again. And that, that has been very successful. Why was the 9th of May, 1950, as you put it, one of the most important dates of 20th century European history? Well, that's when the first
1: integrated European organization came into existence, the coal and steel community. And the idea of that was that the French and German coal and steel industries should be integrated so that it was really physically impossible for the two sides to go to war because... Without coal and steel, you can't really fight for very long. And that was left open to any other countries that wanted to join. And Four other European countries joined. They formed the nucleus of Belgium, Holland, Luxembourg and Italy. Now, Britain was asked to join, indeed almost begged to join because British prestige was enormously high at the end of the war. But Britain didn't join and that's the first sign that Britain was although part of Europe geographically, not of Europe as it were, in terms of European integration.
2: Why was uh, Winston Churchill so ambivalent about the UK joining the movement for European unity in the post-1945 period?
1: Well, Churchill, who I think was the greatest British statesman of the 20th century, he thought that Britain lay at the center of three important circles of influence, The first was, admittedly, Europe. The second was the empire, which was becoming the Commonwealth. And Britain was thought to be at the center of the Commonwealth. And the third was, uh, a bit of a cliche now, the special relationship with America. And Churchill said, you mustn't get out of kilt with any of those three circles. If you you join Europe, you'll weaken your ties with the Commonwealth, you'll weaken your ties with America. Now, I think, the mistake he made, and it's natural at the time we're talking about, with the late 40s, early 50s, he didn't appreciate how quickly British power would decline. And he made the mistake, perhaps, of thinking the Commonwealth would be, as the Empire had been, a powerful political bloc. But of course it isn't. The Commonwealth's a valuable organization, but the countries follow their own course, and countries like Australia, India, Nigeria, and so on. They pursue their own foreign policies, they're friendly with Britain, but they don't feel any need to link their foreign policies with Britain. And then if you take the special relationship, well, there's too much of a disparity of power, really. And that was shown at the time of the Suez Crisis in 1956, when Britain, France and Israel mounted an expedition against Egypt, uh, a military action against Egypt, and the Americans disapproved and made clear their disapproval. So it had to be stopped, the British had to back down. So. If there's a special relationship, which is arguable, it's one between a very powerful country and a much less powerful country. So I think the conclusion has to be that the Commonwealth and America were not really substitutes for European orientation and the three circles doctrine certainly doesn't hold today.
2: Could the European free trade area, which came into being in the late 1950s, in essence be said to have been a British attempt to scupper the emerging common market from the outside, and and why didn't it succeed? Well, absolutely,
1: that's what the continental countries thought. Um, uh, The free trade area was purely economic, and it wasn't uh, an internal market, it wasn't a customs union, wasn't a political uh, unity and um, the Continental did think that. It was composed mainly of the peripheral countries, countries like Austria, Portugal, Switzerland, and and so on. And it didn't really, frankly, get very far because most of the countries followed Britain when she decided she had to apply
2: to join uh, Europe after all. So it was rather ineffective, really. Why has the subject of Britain's relationship to Europe been so toxic in British domestic politics in the past 60 years or or so, and especially in the Conservative Party. Well, you're absolutely right, it's been toxic. And you can say that um, of the last
1: seven Conservative Prime Ministers since Harold Macmillan in the 1960s, Europe has been responsible for the fall of six of them. And of course, it may be responsible for the fall of Boris Johnson, we don't yet know that. But we do know he's got considerable difficulties uh, in uh, trying to get a deal with Europe. But the Conservative Party is the party of the British nation. It's a party traditionally of patriotism. Um, And of course, Europe is a challenge to that because it involves restricting the rights of the nation, restricting sovereignty, uh, if you like. So that is bound to cause problems for the Conservative Party. And it does reflect the broad British ambivalence, which is we're in Europe, but not quite of it. We want the economic advantages. We don't really want the integration that goes with it. And of course, this reflects deeper psychological factors that our history is totally different. We weren't occupied in the war. We didn't have a fascist or Nazi regime as the other continental countries did. So we didn't feel ashamed of our past in the same way as um, perhaps the Germans did, the Austrians, the French, and so on. We, we didn't uh, feel we had to obliterate the past. We were rather proud of our past in being alone for from 1940 to 1941 in the fight against Hitler. And uh, we thought, well, without us, perhaps Hitler would have continued with his domination of Europe. So the national psychology is quite different, and still is, I think, to a great extent.
2: What were or are the structural aspects in governments which made the UK, when it was, uh, or actually uh, in, in fact still is, uh, a member of the European Union, what were those uh, structural aspects, if, if differences between the EU uh, on the continent and the UK, which made the UK's membership, has made the UK's membership of the European Union difficult? Well, I think the prime one was
1: the fact of parliamentary sovereignty. Now, this is something which Americans sometimes shake their heads over, I think, because It's so different from the American system because, of course, America has a written constitution and a federal constitution. And that makes it easier for Americans to understand the European Union, I think, than than for British people. Because we don't have a constitution at all. That's well known. And, of course, we don't have a federal system. Parliament in Britain is sovereign. And what that means is that Parliament can do what it likes. It can pass any legislation it likes. There's no Bill of Rights restricting it. Uh, in the same way as Americans are restricted by the Bill of Rights. I mean, in theory, Parliament could pass an act tomorrow, shall we say, that all red-headed people should be executed. I mean, it's never going to do that. But the limitations on the British Parliament are in terms of custom and convention, things one simply doesn't do. They're not legal limits. Now, of course, if you're in the European Union, you're a subordinate legal authority to the European Union. And there are many things that Parliament might want to do that Europe doesn't let you do. To take one striking example, which played an important role in our um, referendum in 2016, many people in Britain thought that immigration from the European Union should be restricted. Now, Parliament couldn't do that while we were in the European Union, because there's a fundamental principle in the European Union of freedom of movement. So this is a very important restriction. And that made it difficult for Britain Um, There's also an economic point that we had a very small agricultural sector compared with, say, France or Germany or Italy, uh, and therefore the pattern of our trade was quite different. We were a maritime and global power in economic terms, and we got our cheap food not from our own farmers, but from uh, countries in the Commonwealth, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and to some extent, of course, from America. Now, the agricultural policy of the European Union was designed to subsidize farmers, some said inefficient farmers, in a very large agricultural sector in France and Germany. So in place of cheap food from the Commonwealth, we bought more expensive food from the continents, And that, of
2: course, didn't please people very much. Uh was well, not one of the negative features of Britain's relationship with the common market and, and subsequently the European Union is that by the time the UK joined it in 1973, the economic dynamism of the period up to 1974, the so-called 30 Glorious Years, uh, which was was part of the original rationale of the UK joining the common market, was over Mm -hmm. with. That in fact, um, uh, the UK joined the common market almost precisely at the time when the common market's economic, great economic dynamism in terms of GDP growth was more or less over with. That, that's absolutely right, that's absolutely
1: right and uh, it, it's very unfortunate. Um, if we joined in the early 1960s there would have been an association of Europe with prosperity. Joining as we did, excuse me, I'm um, joining as we did <laughs> Excuse me. Joining as we did in the 1970s, you're absolutely right, it was associated with economic difficulties and many of the difficulties, which were Britain's own high inflation, growing unemployment and so on, tended to be blamed on on Europe rather unfairly. Uh, it, it, It was bad luck from that point of view, yes.
2: Why do you think that the 1975 referendum on membership of the common market result in such an overwhelming victory for remaining in the, year, in the common market? Well, we uh, I mean, were
1: in a fairly desperate economic situation then. Inflation was roaring ahead. It's difficult to believe now at a level of 26%. Unemployment was rising. The trade unions seemed to have a stranglehold on the British economy. Our position seemed desperate. And one of the European commissioners who advocated us remaining in the European uh, unity, said um, this is no time to leave a Christmas club, let alone the common market. So there was that and then there's the fact that most of the political leaders who were respected favored a yes vote, a vote to stay in, and those who were against tend to be regarded as extremists from the extreme left and the extreme right. People like Tony Benn and Michael Foote on the extreme left the trade union leaders, which were very left-wing at that time, the IRA uh, and other similar organizations, and also the extreme-right, Enoch Powell, the National Front right-wing of the Conservative Party. They weren't much trusted or liked, and that was a period when there was much more respect and deference for political leaders than there is today. The fact that the leaders of the three major parties supported us remaining in Europe was a very important factor.
0: /nbn50 to get 50% off
2: why was not the referendum results of 1975 definitive in terms of uh, resolving the uk's relationship to the common market
1: it's very difficult to make anything permanent in a democracy i think and uh, the principle of parliamentary sovereignty means that any legislative decision is is Provisional and you can change it the next day if you want you can alter it. It's not like a country with a very strict constitution and a disillusionment with Europe uh, soon set in because we were paying particularly large budgetary contributions for the reason I gave a bit earlier that um, We didn't have a very large agricultural sector the main program of the European Union at that time was the common agricultural policy and that was something we were disadvantaged from because we had a small agricultural sector and we had to import almost all our food from Europe so we were paying into the fund which went to French and German and other farmers and that was thought to be unfair there was a lot of negotiation about the budget and there was then a final settlement uh, by Margaret Thatcher in 1984 at Fontainebleau when she got a budget rebate which is a very important concession
2: how important to the growth of Euroscepticism in the UK was the popular press, the Sun, the Daily Mail, the Daily Express? Could they be said to have been a key variable in the, in the growth of that um, uh, political point of view? Or is it merely the case that uh, these were vehicles for the expression of an independently derived popular opinion? Well,
1: I, I think latter, really. Uh, I'm always sceptical when people talk about the influence of the press because the aim of editors and proprietors is to sell newspapers. And the best way of selling newspapers is to express the opinions of those who want to buy the newspapers. Now, in 1975, almost all of the press was pro-European and the anti-Europeans complained that um, they didn't get much of a hearing. The reason the press turned against Europe was because they sensed that the people were turning against Europe. In, in my view, the press reflects public opinion on the whole. It doesn't create it.
2: How, if at all, was Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher uh, a Eurosceptic? Could she, said, could she have said to have been an anti-European? Well Margaret Thatcher, uh, as, as you know, was in power for over
1: 11 years, the longest Continuous reign by any prime minister since the time of the Napoleonic Wars. She was there from 1979 to 1990. And at the beginning, she wasn't a Eurosceptic at all. She was really quite enthusiastic, a supporter of, of European unity. But she gradually turned against it, partly because of the budgetary contributions I mentioned a few moments ago, partly because she felt the European Union was going too far in integration. She saw it as simply part of the liberal economic world order uh, in terms of free trade. Uh, if you like, a kind of European WTO, World Trade Organization. But the Europeans saw it differently. <clears throat> they saw it as creating a regulated market. Uh, I suppose the United States itself is a regulated market. There are certain restrictions on how you can buy and sell goods and so on. And Market actually didn't want that. Uh, She wanted just a free trade area, if you like, but that that wasn't in accordance with the views of most leaders on the continent.
2: How exactly did the issue of uh, Britain's relationship with the European Union help to end Thatcher's premiership in 1990?
1: Well, there was a squabble because her view of Europe wasn't that of the Foreign Secretary, Sir Geoffrey Howe, nor of a number of other members of her cabinet. And she wanted to rule out any further integration, particularly uh, us joining the common European currency, the euro, which was coming into focus then. Now, her opponents weren't necessarily out of sympathy with that, but they said you shouldn't foreclose options or you will lose influence. You should keep your options open to keep Britain's bargaining position strong. And that was one of the factors that led to her demise. It wasn't, I think, the only one, perhaps not even the most important one, perhaps the most important one. She'd been there simply too long. I think after a certain time, democracies do get tired of their leaders, and perhaps it's a wise principle in America to say that presidents should only serve two terms and no more.
2: Why was Black Wednesday in 1992 so an important event in Britain's relationship with the European Union?
1: Now, Black Wednesday refers to Britain's departure from the European exchange rate mechanism. Now, to prepare for the introduction of a common currency, the Europeans said, let's begin by fixing our exchange rates, the exchange rates of Britain, France, Germany, all the rest of it, in in a kind of common denominator, so that countries can't competitively devalue against each other. Now uh, Margaret Thatcher was against joining that, but her senior colleagues were not. They thought it was a good idea because it would help to contain inflation. Because if you can't devalue, you have to control inflation or uh, you're really in, in, in very serious economic troubles. And they thought it would be a good discipline against inflation. Now. Uh, just about a month or so before uh, her resignation, Margaret Thatcher was really persuaded against her better instincts that Britain would have to join. And the CBI, the main industrialist organization, favored joining. So did the trade unions, al- almost the whole of respectable establishment opinion. Now, the trouble was that our joining coincided with German reunification, and Helmut Kohl, the German chancellor, uh, created a new Deutschmark which was uh, greatly uh, overvalued. And that put pressure on Britain, pressure on interest rates and so on, because Germany was deflating when we didn't really need to deflate. Uh, We were already in a a recession. So uh, there were tremendous market pressures. And eventually after raising interest rates of what was then a huge level of 15%, we were pushed out against our wishes and, Germany didn't do as much to help us as some people thought she should. And that made people think, well, uh, the monetary system doesn't suit us. We could leave, but the euro, you can't leave. It's permanent. So that really legitimized euro skepticism in Britain. It damaged very much the conservative government, which took us out, which by then was led by John Major, Margaret Thatcher's successor. And it uh, first, I think, made... um, Departure from the European Union, a really serious issue for discussion.
2: So, in essence, the decision to join uh, back in um, 1990 sort of replicated the, if you like, disadvantageous uh, initial decision to join in 1973 by uh, Edward Heath, m- meaning that uh, Heath, in essence, uh, was not in the position to bargain obtained concessions when he joined in 1970, 72 73 And similarly, the UK was not able to bargain, given these divisions in uh, the UK's uh, government, about joining the um, exchange rate mechanism. Well, you
1: could say that, yes. And it's perhaps fair to say that after Black Wednesday, there was a huge initial disruption. But after that, the economy recovered and did quite well. So the Eurosceptics called it White Wednesday, not Black Wednesday, So there's the even on that. But your, your point is right um, uh, about when we join. The difficulty, if you join an organisation that's already in full flow, you can't hope to influence it that much. Suppose you're um, uh, joining a tennis club that has been in existence for many years. It's no good joining and hoping you can really alter the rules, unless you're very fortunate. The rules will be set. And the members will say, look, these are our rules. Um, if you don't like them, I'm afraid not much we can do. But if you're going to join, you have to accept them. On the other hand, if you were there at the beginning, if we'd been there at the beginning of the whole European experiment, we would have had more influence. If you're setting up a tennis club with friends and colleagues, you can have a much greater chance of influence. You say, it should be like this, not like that, and so on. So I think that was a problem and also the problems with uh, monetary union. We weren't really there involved as a participant at the beginning, but we came along, along later and asked these countries if they would alter their rules to accommodate us. Now, they said, well, we've gone through a very difficult process of negotiation to get a collection of rules together. Now you're coming along as a kind of latecomer and asking us to alter it all, and I'm sorry, we can't really do that. So it's a fairly obvious problem, really.
2: Given the fact that the Labour governments in power, uh, uh, Blair and Brown from 1997 to 2010, were at any rate nominally pro-Europe, how did the issue of the UK's relationship with the European Union return to such central saliency in that period?
1: Well, it wasn't so much then. It was really a bit later, the effects of... um, uh, Europe came to be felt and they came oddly enough from what was very mainly or largely a British initiative namely the admission of the ex-communist states in Central and Eastern Europe countries like Poland, Hungary uh, and so on into the European Union in 2004 because the free movement principle meant that they were their, their national citizens were entitled to come to any country they wanted and Obviously, many of them came to Britain, which had a much higher standard of living than those ex-communist countries and a good national health service, welfare state uh, and and so on. And uh, Blair uh, really rather underestimated the numbers who were coming. He put it in a few thousand, but I think net it was between uh, um, about two million, I think. And that compares with earlier waves of immigration of Jews at the beginning of the 20th century, about 100,000, perhaps a similar number in the 1930s. Who were um, escaping from Hitler. Then, after the war, perhaps a quarter of a million people from the Commonwealth, from the Caribbean, the West Indies, and and Africa, and another quarter of a million from India, the Indian subcontinent, and East Africa. And this was completely um, of a different order. And also, there were people, of course, who, unlike those from the Commonwealth, with whom we felt some. If you like, relationship as kith and kin who spoke English, they didn't speak English, so they altered communities out of recognition, and that was a key factor in turning people against Europe because they said we want to restrict or manage immigration and we can't do it as part of the European Union. It's fair to say this is often misunderstood, and that now that we have left the European Union and therefore can manage immigration, there's a much more positive attitude in Britain to immigration. Indeed, um, uh, a survey done a year or so ago showed that 48% of the British public believed that immigrants made a positive contribution to Britain. That's a higher proportion than in any European Union country. And it's also the case that immigrants are more likely to get a job in Britain and in any of the EU countries. So what people wanted, they weren't necessarily being intolerant or racist, as is sometimes said. What they wanted was not to stop immigration, but to manage it, to put it under the control of Parliament rather than the European Union.
2: Elaborating on uh, your last answer, what could be said to be the social origins of Brexit?
1: Well, immigration is the main one. I think that um, w- without immigration, I think we would have stayed in the European Union. Um, there was never much enthusiasm for Europe, but it wasn't a salient issue politically. And it's interesting, in 2001, the Conservative opposition leader, William Hague, who was later to become Foreign Secretary, he said, you have only 24 hours to save the pound. In other words, the left-wing government would take us in the euro. It didn't, in fact. But people didn't know what he was talking about. It wasn't an important issue. Immigration made it concrete and salient. And there was a time just before the referendum when people said in in opinion poll surveys it was the most important issue the country faced. Now that's gone now and people are happy with managed immigration. Um, So there's been a great change. But it was confused also with the question of migration from Syria, which is quite different issue migration outside the European Union, and people feared a lot of Syrian migrants might come into Britain. And then there was a fear that Turkey would enter the European Union, she'd been trying to for some time. And some of the Brexiteers said, which wasn't true, that Britain couldn't veto Turkish entry, and that consequently, 80 million Turks could arrive in Britain. There there were some false fears. It's fair to say false fears on both sides in different ways. Um, uh, So I I think without immigration, we'd probably still have remained in the European Union. But David Cameron tried to get concessions on that issue. He he didn't manage to secure that.
2: Would you say that uh, as compared to Harold Wilson in 1975, that uh, Prime Minister Cameron uh, erred in any way in terms of the way he uh, structured the pro-Europe campaign? Well, the Conservatives did face the difficulty that they were
1: a Euro-sceptic party and they'd spend a lot of time saying that there were a lot of things wrong with Europe. So when they then turned round and said, but nevertheless, we ought to stay in Europe, it was a bit difficult perhaps to put that case across. And uh, you might have said, well, it's, it's like all things imperfect, but better in than out. But it didn't somehow come across. and It did with Harold Wilson. He was, I think, it's fair to say one of the most subtle and cunning politicians Britain has had since the war. And um, well, as, as i perhaps implied earlier, he was lucky in that circumstances in Britain were different. I mean, Britain in 2016 was much more self-confident than in 1975. And this meant we felt we could do without Europe. We didn't feel that in 1975. We were perhaps rather fearful um, of, of what might happen. So I think there is that difference. But yes, I mean, if you judge politics by success, Harold Wilson succeeded uh, and Cameron failed. Harold Wilson, perhaps the only British politician who's got the better of Europe. As I've said, so many conservative leaders
2: have been decapitated by Europe. Um, How much of an influence on the vote in the Brexit referendum was the so-called democratic deficit of the European Union? Well it was stated, and people did feel that there were uh, leading officials
1: of the European Union they couldn't get rid of if they didn't like them. The European Union does bear some similarities to the American federal system, but there's one important difference, that there's no equivalent in America to the European Commission, which people don't elect, which is chosen by the European Parliament. But the European Parliament is very, very remote from most people, turnout rates for European Parliament elections are much lower than for national elections and people don't feel they're represented by the European Parliament in the way that Americans feel they're represented by their uh, congressmen, congresswomen and and senators. So uh, they feel that these heads of the Commission just come from nowhere and have really unelected power. Who elected Ursula von der Leyen, for example? You, you, you might ask. But having said that, I don't think that played the key role. Um, the argument about taking back control, which is the slogan of the Brexiteers, was a fairly abstract argument in a way. What made it concrete, as I said a few moments ago, was the issue of immigration.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: that really showed what it meant to have lost control.
2: How do you envision the future of the European Union?
1: Well, I think it does face serious problems. And um, Donald Tusk, the former president of the European Council, said that the vote in Europe uh, should be a warning sign. It reflected certain worries that people have over Europe as a whole. And uh, if you look at the continent, by contrast with Britain, you have some populist and in some cases racist parties that are very strongly representing the legislature. For example, the official opposition in Germany is the Alternative for Deutschland, which uh, has some elements of neo-Nazism in it. It's a very unpleasant party in my opinion. Uh, in France, if anything were to happen to President Macron, uh, the successor might be the Front National, led by Marine Le Pen. You've got similar sorts of parties, a party in power in Hungary. You've got strong part of that sort in Italy and Sweden and many other countries. We haven't got that sort of party so it's a problem for Europe that nationalism is on the rise again and it's a threat to the liberal order which Europe is supposed to represent. And Eurobarometer polls show that trust in the European Union is at an all-time low and that is something really Europe has to take account of. It's no good just going ahead with further integration Because you then get even more of what you call a democratic deficit of making the whole system much more remote from people. And if you take away, for example, economic powers from national states, what is there to fight national elections about? If You can't argue about the budget or the economy. What is left? Not much, really.
2: How do you see the uh, UK's future relationship with the European Union, let us say, five years from today?
1: Well, that is a $64,000 question and it's it's a really impossible question to answer. I would personally like to see Britain close to Europe because I think we've got a lot to offer Europe in terms of very robust liberal political institutions. And also if Europe wants to be a power in the world, it must defend itself. It's one of just four powers in the world, the four great powers in the world, the others being America, Russia and China which can't defend itself, but relies on America to defend, to defend her, really 75 years after the end of the war, which is a bit odd, really. I mean, um, I love Americans, but I mean, why should someone living, say, in the Midwest, be paying for the defence of Europe, they might say, as a taxpayer? What am I doing? Wouldn't that money be better spent on America? And President Trump made that point, but I don't think he's alone in doing so. I think President Biden will do the same, but perhaps in in, in rather sweeter tones. we shall see. But if there's to be a European defence, then Britain must play a part in that. She is with France, the only nuclear power in Europe. She spends uh, the 2% asked for by NATO, 2% of GDP on defence. And so I I would like to see Britain close to Europe. But whether this will happen in the next five years, I don't know. There, there, There will be a problem. The danger, of course, is that these negotiations leave a sour taste on both sides
2: and as a period of of withdrawal, but we'll have to see. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, Professor, what would it be? How important
1: it is that the European Union succeeds to maintain peace on the continent of Europe, but to succeed, it must reform. And it's in America's interests that the European Union succeeds, and America should play a positive role in all that, as it did at the creation, it was American pressure that helped create the institutions of a united Europe after the war under the Truman administration in particular. And America has a great interest in that. And part of the problem is that America, as Henry Kissinger said, has always sought to create a united Europe, but sometimes hasn't liked the consequences of that when Europe has its own part to play. But that's a
2: necessary consequence of a continent growing up. Upon that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Valdinor, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. I have enjoyed it.